And Father, now as we come to your word, we thank you once again for it. We remember that your word is inerrant, that your word is inspired, that your word is all-sufficient, that your word addresses every need, every question, every concern that we could possibly have. We remember that your word is profitable for reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would be working in us during this time to that end. That we would grow in the likeness of Christ. That we would see our desperate need for him. And that he would be exalted during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be starting uh, kind of where we left off last week. We left off in verse 10, but we're going to rewind a little bit, and we'll be looking at verses 7 to 14 today as we continue to look at this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. When I was a kid, I loved Indiana Jones movies. My favorite movie out of the original trilogy was undoubtedly uh, the last one of the original trilogy, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, In that movie, Indiana Jones gets news that his father has gone missing because his father is in pursuit of uh, of the the Holy Grail. And uh, so that ends up uh, setting Indiana Jones on a quest to go and find the Holy Grail too because by finding the Holy Grail, he thinks he's he's gonna find his dad. Uh, but when they finally get to the location of the Holy Grail, it's a room that is just filled with all these cups and all these chalices of every shape and size. They discover a knight in this room who's been kept alive for hundreds and hundreds of years by the power of the Holy Grail. And the first catch is that there is only one grail that grants eternal life. If you drink from one of the decoys, if you drink from one of, the, one of the wrong ones, it is sudden death. The second catch is that the Holy Grail has to stay in this room. So the interesting thing is the way that this kind of played on the idea of there being something that would sustain human life indefinitely. Before the idea of there being a, a Holy Grail Um, existed uh, that could accomplish this. There were all kinds of pagan superstitions about the existence of a so-called fountain of youth. If you've been searching for the fountain of youth, I've got bad news for you. It's just a pagan superstition. Uh, But this idea all goes back to at least um, the 5th century B.C., 500 years before Christ, when a philosopher by the name of Herodotus uh, briefly mentioned it in some of his writings. And then this carried on to be a myth that was actually carried through the centuries, this quest for the fountain of youth. Even into the 16th century, when Juan Ponce de Leon, a a Spanish explorer uh, who became the first governor of Puerto Rico and uh, who, who discovered Florida, he ventured to Florida where he was told by the natives that there was a fountain of youth, a fountain that could restore youth and vitality to anyone in a chain of islands about 50 miles east of modern-day Miami, and that was in the Bahamas. So history tells us that he went and he bathed and drank from every stream, every river, every body of water that he could, but given the fact that he's not around today to tell us about it, uh, it kind of goes without saying that he didn't find it, and of course that's because such a thing doesn't exist in the physical sense anyway. So eventually, uh, Ponce de Leon gave up. Uh, he returned frustrated and, uh, and aging, I might add, to Puerto Rico. So he's not famous for discovering the fountain of youth. Rather, he's famous for discovering Florida and for trying desperately to find eternal life. If only he would have read his Bible. If only he would have read his Bible, he would have known that the fount of eternal life isn't found in Florida. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And that's the message. That's the message that explains why John, the apostle, the the author of the gospel according to John, tells us that Jesus had to travel through the region of Samaria, a region that the Jews would normally have tried 
to avoid at almost all costs, even if it meant traveling an extra day or two. The resentment and the hostilities that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews went back centuries, literally centuries. Uh, So it wasn't geographically necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria, but it was necessary, as we saw last week, for walking in obedience to the Father for doing the Father's will. It was necessary because in this region, Jesus has come face to face with a Samaritan woman whose salvation God has eternally decreed. A woman whose testimony would result in the salvation of many Samaritans who would believe in Jesus as their Savior, which we'll see by the end of this chapter. So in the conversation that takes place at this well, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, we find Jesus modeling evangelism for us both uniquely and perfectly. Uh, This is one story in which there are kind of two, usually you try to see yourself in, in the shoes of one person or so, but in this one you're trying to see yourself in the shoes both of, of Jesus in the sense, in the sense that we should strive to imitate the model that he sets for us, but not until we first see ourselves in the shoes of this Samaritan woman, this woman who was kind of a social outcast, who never would have sought God, but who instead was sought by God, just like everyone else who has ever been saved. And so the point of our passage last week was pretty simple, that everyone needs the gospel. It's similar this week. The point of the passage that we'll be following up with today is that just as physical water is necessary for physical life, so too Jesus is necessary. Faith in Jesus is necessary for spiritual life, for eternal life, for the same eternal life that he told us about in chapter 3 during his conversation with Nicodemus, the life that is given to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. And so to that end, Jesus arrives at this well in Samaria at the sixth hour in the heat of the afternoon, which brings us to this encounter which has been recorded for us starting in John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 together. It says, there came a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So just to kind of review what we saw last week, you know, the, the first thing that we should see here is that Jesus is the one who initiates. Jesus is the one who takes the first step. Jesus is the one who says something to her. She doesn't come and say something to him. He has to initiate the conversation with her. She undoubtedly realizes that there are some social barriers between the two of them. And by that, I mean not only was it uh, impolite or uncouth, socially unacceptable for a common citizen like her to, to strike up a conversation with, with a rabbi, because rabbis didn't really talk to women, especially publicly, uh, but also she would have immediately recognized by the things that he was wearing and by his hair and everything that he, she was talking to a Jew, She was talking to a Jew, and that Jew, she, in her mind, must hate her. That would have been her initial thought as she walks up to this well. Here's a Jew who hates me. I can't talk to him. But she comes to the well because she needs water. And so she has traveled from the city to the well in the middle of the day for that purpose. The irony here is, now we kind of have to, to, to use a little bit of imagination here. Where did the disciples go? They went into the city to buy food. Where did the woman come? From the city. And so there's a good chance that on her way out of the city that she probably passed the disciples who were on their way into the city. And at that point in the lives of the disciples, these guys were arrogant. I mean, these are guys who even toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry were trying to argue for, for who was the best among the disciples and who would get the place of honor uh, in, in the kingdom. And, but, th- but this is very, very uh, like them, to be arrogant, right? And so I think we can assume that they would have looked down on the Samaritans as, as most Jews did at the time, and they wouldn't have moved to the side of the path for any Samaritan, but especially somebody like this woman. 
And this would have been a fresh reminder in her mind of of the hatred, of the hostility, of the tension that existed, and how they viewed her almost as something of a subhuman. And so with those feelings freshly stirred up, with those thoughts freshly remembered in her mind, she comes to the well only to find Jesus, another Jew, waiting for her. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. I think we can only imagine what must have been running through her mind with all those fresh feelings, with all those fresh emotional wounds uh, going through her as he said that, especially if she was just treated as poorly by the disciples as we might imagine she could have been. I mean, she's got to be thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You you would ask me to do this? This Jewish rabbi can't be serious that he would ask me for a drink. But part of what John, the, the apostle, is showing us here is the humanity of Jesus. He bore the heat of the sun, and he knew, just like you and I know, what it's like to be thirsty. I mean, legitimately thirsty. I don't know if most Americans or most Westerners know what it's like to be legitimately thirsty, you know, when I think of being thirsty, I, I don't think back to, you know, growing up in Las Vegas and playing soccer in the middle of the summer when it was 115 degrees. Yeah, I'd get thirsty, but that's not what I think of when I think of being legitimately thirsty. Uh, I, I, I don't think of the time that I was driving a Ford Bronco from Colorado to Las Vegas and it broke down between Utah and Las Vegas and my brother-in-law and I had to push it up a hill when it was 120 degrees outside. That was pretty bad, but that's not what I think of when I think of being legitimately thirsty. No, when I think of a time when I was really, really, really thirsty. I think back to the five weeks that I spent as a missionary in Moldova in 2005. See, when you go to Eastern Europe, when you go to Moldova, you can't drink the water because the water has a bacteria in it that Westerners can't, can't drink. And so every, every missionary gets warned about this. I had to get shots, you know, to, to help me, you know, help my immune system against what's in the water there. I mean, uh, water is used to cook and prepare food. So to an extent, everybody gets exposed to it a little bit, and it makes you sick for days. But just having a little bit uh, from, you know, pr- preparing food doesn't compare to drinking out of, out of a faucet there, for example. Nobody drinks out of a faucet there if you're from the West because you will be so sick. Anyway, so for five weeks, all I could drink was bottled sparkling water, uh, which, which doesn't sound that bad, and it's really not that bad. That will hydrate you, but let me tell you, it's just not the same. Uh, it's not the same at all as, as regular water. So when I was flying home, I stayed overnight at the airport in Rome, and you can drink the water in Rome. And I remember the first thing I did when I walked into my hotel room was I got a glass and filled it up with sink water. And upon drinking that water, I realized that I had a thirst that I was not even aware of. I was so thirsty. I I, I must have had 10 or 15 glasses of water. I I was just, water has never tasted so good. I was far more thirsty than I was consciously aware of. And so is this woman. She's thirsty. She's physically thirsty, but she's also got a thirst that she isn't even aware of. She's longing for physical water, yes, but more than that, she's thirsty for the very thing which only Jesus can give her, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. And this is how God deals with all of us, friends. He seeks us. He's the one who initiates with us. We don't initiate with him. We don't seek him. He must seek us. We're like this woman in the sense that if it were up to us, we would just leave him in silence at the edge of the well. But, praise the Lord, he doesn't. He he doesn't just leave it up to us. He initiates. He knows what it'll take to break down the barriers that we in our flesh are so quick to build between ourselves and God. Watch how fast she starts putting up barriers. Look at verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? And John adds, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
See what she's doing? She, she, she's putting up barriers. She's trying to shake free of this conversation that Jesus has initiated. She's hoping that he's just going to say something like, you know, it's true, we, we don't deal with you half-bred heretics. We don't deal with you. We don't talk to you. We don't touch you. We don't hang out with you. That's what she's hoping he'll say and just be done with her already. But the beautiful thing here is that Jesus doesn't let her off the hook. He won't let her go. He's not only traveled to Samaria for her and for those whom she's going to end up telling about Jesus, but this is the very purpose of the incarnation. This is the reason that he came down from heaven to seek and save the lost, including this woman including this woman. And so the conversation continues, showing that Jesus is willing to cross all these barriers which separate her not only from the Jews, but which separate her from God. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So we should understand as we consider what Jesus says, we should understand that he's identifying himself here as the gift of God. When he says, if you knew the gift of God, he's speaking of himself. He's saying, you don't know me. You don't know who I am. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you. See how that's repetitive? It's saying two things about him. Number one, she doesn't know who he is. Number two, he's saying something to her. He says, give me a drink. So do you see the connection there between those two phrases? Jesus himself is the very gift of God. She not only needs what he has to give, but first and foremost, she needs him. She needs to know who he is. Just like you and I need him. Just like you and I need to know who he is. We don't come to him just to get his gifts. He's a generous giver. But we don't just come for the gifts. Rather, we receive his gifts when we receive him by faith. Throughout the Old Testament, God likened himself over and over again or to his works as water. Those living that time would have recognized that living water would have referred to fresh water, a water from a stream, a, you know, water from a river or, or a spring. It's water that moves and is, is fresh drinkable, as opposed to stagnant water, which can be deadly and dangerous. In the ancient world, just like today, without water, there's no life. Without water, there is no life. But with water, there is life. And so God continually likened himself throughout the Old Testament or his deeds to water. We read in Jeremiah 2.13, God refers to himself as the fountain of living waters. We read in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, where God tells of the day that is coming when, quote, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Again, in Isaiah 44.3 and 4, God promises his people, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Holy Spirit on your offspring spring and my blessing on your descendants and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water over and over again God likens himself or his works to water in offering living water Jesus is saying to this woman I'm the one who brings all these things in whom all these things that the scriptures talk about are found so come come and drink from this this is the purpose that he came for but while people in general might at least be intrigued by the gifts, the sad thing is no one seeks the giver on their own. But if this woman knew, if this woman knew that the very one who stood before her speaking to her, asking her for a drink of water, was the very one who was the gift of God to all who would believe in him, Jesus said she would have asked him, for a drink, and he would have given her living water. This gift of Christ, this gift of salvation through him, along with every other heavenly blessing, according to what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, this gift of Christ is an act of mercy on God's behalf because you can't earn it. None of us can earn it. You can't deserve it. 
None of us do. You can't qualify yourself for being granted it. This gift is given entirely from God's gracious providential hand to unworthy recipients. It's not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty, as one of my favorite preachers would say. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the good news. He's talking about God's mercy, which is found in him alone. He's talking about freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin. He's talking about escaping the wrath of God towards sinners. This is the gospel. This is the good news that he's talking about. See, if the gospel is only good news for the respectable, like Nicodemus, we saw his conversation in the previous chapter, if the gospel is only good news for the respectable, it's not good news for this woman. If the gospel is only good news for the morally upright, for those who behave themselves, then it's not good news for this woman. If the gospel is only good news for those who have something within themselves that qualifies them to receive it, it's not good news for this woman. And the same is true for every one of us as well, friends. If the gospel is only good news for those who are worthy of being respectable with God, it's not good news for me. It's not good news for you. If the gospel is only good news for the morally upright, it's not good news for us. If the gospel depends on there being something in us that God would choose us for because of something about us, it's not good news for us. In fact, it's bad news because it means we've, because we've already sinned against God through thought, word, and deed, we have already disqualified ourselves from the only hope that a human being has before a holy God. No, the gospel is terrible news if, if it's conditioned upon us in any way. If it's conditional upon our penance or, or who knows how many good deeds. If you have to do so many good deeds to be justified before God, who knows how many. Or, or, or even if it's contingent upon our seeking after God. That's not good news at all. But the gospel is amazing and beautiful news because it is freely given as a gift of God, by the grace of God, to those who will believe in Christ. The gospel is good news because it's a gift that God gives to unworthy, immoral, unqualified sinners who are not any of those things. And this is what Jesus gives her. He gives her the gospel. He gives her the good news. He's telling her what she needs in order to be saved. She must drink from, she must ask and drink from what Christ has to offer. She must know the gift of God and who Jesus is as the one in whom that gift is found. But how does she respond to what Jesus has said? I mean, these are these are beautiful words of Jesus. If you, if you see them in their context, if you see them in, in the context of the, the hostility, the animosity, the barriers that she's putting up, and the gentleness of Jesus, sh shouldn't these words have just made her heart melt? I mean, don't they make your heart melt? Should they not have torn down every barrier, every defense that she might hope to have put up between herself and not only this Jew, but herself and God? Indeed, they, they should have. But the nature of the flesh is so strong, a person will continue to resist to some degree and do so in vain, I might add. God will turn none away who come to him, friends. The problem is that by nature, we resist coming to him. We won't come to him. We resist grace. The proud and the upstanding will think, hey, I'm, I'm good enough. I, I, I don't need grace. I need a reward because of how good I am, because of what I've done if they would just humble themselves and look upon the Savior pleading with God for mercy, he would never turn them away. So then, when a person is condemned, they are without excuse. Our only hope is that Jesus would persist. That Jesus would persist and pursue us just as he does with this woman. And just as he does and has done with you 
and me and all of his sheep. So let's see how the woman responds to this statement by Jesus. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. It says, she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? What's she doing? Rather than taking Jesus up on his offer, rather than asking Jesus for a drink of this living water, she mocks him. She, she ridicules him. She, she's, she's filled with disbelief that he would say such a silly thing. So she, she ridicules him, first pointing out there are two things that she, that she mocks him for here. First, she points out the absurdity of his offer since he doesn't even have a cistern or a pot or anything to draw water with. And then secondly, she, uh, you know, jokingly, that he must think that he's greater than Jacob since he's offering something that even Jacob couldn't offer. I mean, if Jacob had found fresh running water, he, he wouldn't have had to dig this enormous well. So she recognizes that Jesus is claiming to be greater than Jacob, and so she mocks and she ridicules him for making such a claim. She's just filled with disbelief. Why? Well, to give you the most straightforward answer, uh, we only have to remember back to what Jesus said in his conversation with Nicodemus. The light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So why is she filled with disbelief? Because she loves sin, and because she doesn't want her sin to be exposed. I mean, of course she doesn't, right? Right? But we all know what happens before this conversation is over, don't we? Jesus is going to let her know there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. That even though she doesn't want her sin exposed, Jesus will shine the light on it anyway. And it's such beautiful grace that he would. It's such beautiful grace. What, what patience, what persistence. But perhaps the most important thing that we can see here, the most significant thing that we can see here in her response is that she thinks that Jesus is talking about actual water, like literal physical water. I mean, now compare that with what Nicodemus said in the previous chapter when Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, uh, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? You see how similar that is to what she's saying here? She says, you've got nothing to draw water with. What do you think, you're, you're greater than Jacob? Very similar to what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus and the, woman, and the Samaritan woman could not be more different socially. They could not be further apart in terms of their social standing. And yet they could not be more alike, not only in their need for the grace of God, but in their total inability in the flesh to understand spiritual truth. This woman is going to see the light. She will be rescued from her spiritual blindness by the end of this conversation. But at this point, she is still spiritually blind. She is still dead in her sins and thus unable to discern spiritual matters of truth. So Jesus will graciously, patiently, relentlessly work to pull aside the veil that blinds her heart to spiritual matters. But just like Nicodemus, she's not there yet. Now if I'm being honest, if we're all just being honest with ourselves, this is where you and I are probably the most likely to give up when it comes to evangelism. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody only for them to mock you? Or ridicule you? Start making jokes at your expense, or they just—it's just making no sense. It's like you're speaking Latin to them, and they don't know Latin. Like you're just speaking a different language. Does it ever feel like you're talking to a wall when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody? If you spend any time evangelizing, I mean, this is what you run into all the time. First of all, people aren't looking for spiritual conversations, just like this woman was not looking for a spiritual conversation, and knowing. 
Knowing that makes it difficult enough for us to approach them and share the gospel with them. But that's only the first obstacle. That's only the, the first hurdle, if you look at it as, as, a, as, a, as a hurdle. The second one comes immediately after that when you've broken the ice and you've shared spiritual truth with them and they demonstrate absolutely no ability to understand what you're talking about or why you're talking about it. But instead of giving up at this point, this is where we should be quick to remember what Paul says about the unregenerate man's total inability to understand spiritual truth. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So how do we understand spiritual truth? The Holy Spirit has to reveal it to us. The Holy Spirit works to, to, to give us understanding. This is where we, we remember that if we understand the very spiritual truth communicated by the Bible at all, even that is entirely a gift of God by grace unto us that we would understand what his word says, what the gospel is, why the gospel is necessary. So we should see this not, not as a reason to get frustrated, which is so often our, our knee-jerk reaction, to get frustrated when we're mocked or when people don't understand us. Rather, what it should do is it should humble us as we remember that even what we know is only by the grace of God. All we can do is put the gospel in their ears. God's the one who must bring it to the heart. So instead of getting flustered, instead of getting frustrated, it should cause us to rely more deeply on the Holy Spirit. It should cause us to rely more fully on prayer for this person that we're sharing the gospel with. So our response shouldn't be frustration. It should be a deeper sense of compassion for the person, a stronger reliance on the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he is capable of doing, which we are not, convincing, convicting, and converting. Friends, this is why we have nothing to boast in. Nothing. Salvation is entirely the work of the Lord. Our understanding of spiritual truth is even a gift of the Lord. Our responsibility is simply to lovingly share the gospel with those who need it and to leave the results of our efforts in the hands of the one who took care of the results with us when we heard the gospel and saw to it that the gospel penetrated our minds, and our hearts. See, without the work of the Holy Spirit, I mean, it's, it's easier to nail jello to a wall, right, than it is to impart spiritual truth to somebody who's spiritually dead, spiritually blind. This woman reminds us of that truth by revealing that she completely missed, completely misunderstood what Jesus said, having interpreted it in a physical sense rather than the spiritual sense that Jesus meant it. First of all, Jesus had nothing physical with which to draw water. And secondly, as far as this woman was concerned, Jesus had to be out of his mind. He had to be crazy to think that he was better than the patriarch Jacob. But he's telling her about a thirst that she's not even aware of. She thinks he's talking about plumbing, about a better way to find water, or coming up with an idea that only somebody who is just completely losing their mind due to heat stroke or exhaustion would conceive of. And so what we should understand here is that Jesus isn't ministering to her felt needs. What are her felt needs here? She's thirsty, physically thirsty. I'm sure that she also realized and we realize that she has all these other felt needs in her life as well. Um, surely she felt like she could have used some help with relationships, for one, right? Uh, she probably felt like uh, she needed some help with understanding men, uh, on how to win friends and influence people. She didn't recognize her deepest need. And her deepest need was for living water. Living water. This is why we don't focus first and foremost in our ministry here on felt needs. That's not our primary concern. Our primary concern, our primary responsibility is simply to preach the gospel and make disciples because spiritually dead people don't feel their greatest need. 
which is to be reconciled to God by repenting and believing in Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for ministering to felt needs. For example, last weekend when we were outside of Planned Parenthood and I shared the gospel with a homeless woman named Mindy, uh, right after I shared the gospel with her, I asked her what she's had to eat that day, and she said she didn't have any money, and so she hadn't eaten anything. So I walked across the street with her, went into 7-Eleven with her, and bought breakfast for her. So what had the greater priority, filling her stomach or sharing the gospel with her? Sharing the gospel with her is the priority because she could have died crossing the street to 7-Eleven having not heard the good news. But see, if she had breakfast, if that was the primary thing, she'd be hungry again just a couple hours later. But if she would only believe the gospel, there would be a hunger within her that would go away for good. St. Augustine once wrote this. He said, Quote, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. What he's saying there is that nothing but God satisfies the deepest cravings, the deepest longings, the deepest hungers, and the deepest thirsts of the human soul. But we're so ignorant of our own deepest needs. It's only by the grace of God working in us that we would say with the psalmist, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's only by grace that we would understand that and sing that with the psalmist. How beautiful it is as we look at this, this passage here in John, to see the persistence of the Lord with this woman. He is just relentless. Like a sheep who's, who's young and naive and afraid as they run from the shepherd. She, she has said all that she can think of to shake his pursuit. But like a good shepherd chasing after a wayward sheep, he stays on her. He keeps going after her. He would leave the 99 behind for her. He would lay down his life for her just like he would and did for all of his sheep. He stays after her. Watch what he says here in verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But, who, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, the point that Jesus is making here, number one, he's, he's not going to let her go. But the point that he's making is that the satisfaction that we seek in things other than God do not compare to the satisfaction that is found in him alone. If you have riches, that might give you some shallow sense of fulfillment or happiness or joy for a season, satisfaction for a little while. But eventually you'll get to the point where you realize it's not enough, you need more. If you have power, same thing. Prestige, same thing. Influence, fill in the blank. Whatever you're seeking in this world other than God, it might give you a fleeting, temporary illusion of satisfaction that'll be here today and gone in five seconds. It's possible to have all these things and yet feel completely unsatisfied and unfulfilled. But this picture of water, of, of living water springing up from within her is a picture of the infinite, never-ending life and peace and hope and joy and satisfaction that comes from nothing else but believing in Christ and thereby finding our life and our very identity in Him alone. This life in Him, it's active, it's flowing it's not stagnant. Stagnant water is a picture of death. This flowing water is a picture of life. See, to be born again, to have eternal life in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is to have this fountain within you, moving you, growing you, sustaining you, 
welling up within you and just overflowing. If you have never come to Jesus in faith for this, this is what he offers you. This is what he offers you. See, Christianity, there's this, there's this picture, caricature of Christianity that it's all about following all these rules. No, the Bible is not about, all, about following all these rules. See, if, if God wanted to make it really clear to us that we can't follow all the rules that are necessary for being holy in his sight, how many rules would he give us? How about 600 and something? You'd think we'd get the point, right? 600 and something, I, I just broke one of those while I was thinking about those 600. Exactly. Christianity is not about following all the rules. Rather, the Bible's clear message from beginning to end is that you can't. There's no way for you on your own to gain a standing of holiness or righteousness in God's sight. And so what you need is somebody to stand in your place as your substitute to take the wrath of God that you have earned for yourself upon himself in your place. The message of the gospel is not that you need to clean yourself up and come to Jesus. The message of the gospel is there's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. All you can do is come to Jesus and let him take care of it. Let him deal with it. Let him reconcile you to God. Let him forgive your sins, the sins that he died for, and that he rose from the grave to prove were dealt with. If you come to Jesus in faith, he will not turn you away. He will never cast away anybody who comes to him in faith and repentance. If you come to Jesus in faith, believing that he can do all these things, reconcile you to God, grant you forgiveness, forsaking your own efforts to earn a good standing before God, he will save you. He will put this well of water springing up within you entirely by grace. Entirely by grace. He will give that well to you. Or maybe you've done that. Maybe you have tasted the waters of eternal life, this, this living water that Jesus offers. But you feel like your life is stagnant. Your, your life doesn't feel like it's overflowing with joy and peace and hope and satisfaction. I mean, and there are a million different reasons that this happens. It's not uncommon for us to, to feel that way. But number one, uh, our feelings lie to us. Our feelings are just liars. We can't base anything on what we feel because our hearts are so deceptive. But while there are a million reasons that this happens, it almost always goes back to drinking too much from the world's trough, seeking pleasure, seeking fulfillment, seeking satisfaction in things other than God. Sometimes we feel like that because we get so comfortable and so obsessed with the gifts that we overlook and neglect the giver. That is, we stop paying attention to, to the Lord and we start paying attention to all the stuff he's blessed us with. It happens. If God has placed this well within you, though, you can do all that you want. You can, you can do all that you can think of to try and block this well by pouring worldly dirt in it, pouring worldly filth into it, but the nature of a spring of water is that it will always, always, always break through again. The believer may have a season in which we seek satisfaction in worldly things, but eventually that spring will always bring us back to the Lord. It'll always break through all the filth. A well, now if you have a well, you can cover that up and it'll never be an issue again. You can build a house on a former well, but you can't build a house on a spring a spring will break through. Now, with that spring, you, you can dump stuff into it and muddy it up for a time. It'll always fight through to the surface, washing away all the contaminants that you thought would block it. Likewise, friends, the Spirit of God dwelling within you will ultimately prevail if you are truly a child of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But here's the thing. The more you work against it, the harder it's going to be on you. 
Do you believe that God will discipline those whom he loves? He will. And, and that's grace. That's grace when we, when we seek satisfaction from the world and we find that it only brings us hardship. That's grace. So why wait? Why wait for God to discipline you and, and wreak havoc in your life? Make a mess of your life. The world's trough is filled with poison. Why not turn your heart away from it today? And to once again see that your deepest need is Christ and that the deepest wells of satisfaction are found in Him. See, the application of this passage today, friends, is, is first to see ourselves in the shoes of this Samaritan woman. To, to see and, and to, to remember and to consider the way that Jesus was so patient with us just as he was so patient with her. To see the way that he was so kind to her. To see the way that he was so relentlessly loving with her. And to know, to remember that he's been the same way with us and with all of his people. But from there, we must see this also as a model for our own evangelism. We must strive and we must learn in our evangelism to be as patient, as kind, as direct, as loving with people as Jesus was, not only with this woman, but as he was with you and me and all who have repented and believed in Jesus and have thus been granted this, this spring of living water welling up within us. Just as physical water is necessary for physical life, remember, so too Jesus, faith in Jesus is necessary for spiritual life. Sinners will not seek him. If you build it, they will not come. That's not the way it works. Sinners won't seek God. God's plan is that we would seek them. And that's how Christ works. That's how he seeks his sheep today. Through our efforts to share the good news. Remember what Romans 10.14 says. How will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That word, by the way, is the same. You could also translate that as saying a proclaimer. Somebody who proclaims the truth of the gospel to those who need it. Our passage today should bring that verse to mind. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to be reminded of. And in such a touching way in this passage. This passage here in John, this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well is a vivid reminder of the graciousness, the loving kindness, and the patience that God has had with every single one of us. So let's follow after his example as we go out into the world to share the good news with people who really aren't looking for a spiritual conversation, but whose greatest, deepest need is to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for the beautiful reminder of the patience, the grace, and the love, and the persistence that you have demonstrated toward us. Not that we were moral people, not that we were good people, not that we were qualified people, but that we were lost and you sought us. You pursued us and you didn't relent. Thank you for the reminder of that, Lord. We pray that it would humble us. We pray that it would give us a fresh perspective, not only when we consider our own walk with you, but also in our evangelistic efforts. Father, we pray for gospel conversations. We pray for opportunities to share the good news, the wonderful news that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, a sinner can be reconciled to you, even the most vile sinner. And so, Father, don't only give us wisdom as we go forth, knowing how to have these conversations, 
But give us courage. Give us courage that we would obey you, obey the task that you have given us in the Great Commission to go forth and make disciples of all the nations. Thank you for your work in us. We pray for those around us. We pray for those that you've given us a burden to share the good news with, that you would work through us to draw people to yourself, just like you did with us. We thank you for that. We owe our lives to you for what you've done. So go with us as we leave today. Go with us, strengthen us, give us wisdom and courage to share the good news for the glory of Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.